From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You know, I was going back to like the Falcon 1 days when you guys launched in 2008. I mean, you know, I remember you were just this hopeful rocket company. You wanted to make rockets cheaper. Here we are 15 years later. I mean, there's a full commercial space revolution underway. Um, there's dozens of rocket startups and satellite startups. You know, I was just wondering if in your wild imagination, you thought this would happen in, in 15 years. Uh, I didn't think it was impossible. Um, so if you say my wildest imagination, I would say, yeah, probably uh, it could have, this is uh, not far from what I would have expected to happen. Um, we've made more progress on the satellite front than I would have expected by now. Um, and a little less progress on the um, on Mars because um, Starship is really needed for Mars and for a base on the moon. But overall, I think space today is vastly more interesting and vibrant than it was certainly ten, ten years ago, or even five years ago. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. You know, there'd been a lot of very wealthy people that had tried this in the past. There'd been some false starts. It seems like everything really started to click in the last few years. I mean, like, you know, what do you think were the most dramatic changes that made this this possible that, that over the last five years we've seen this exponential increase in commercial space activity? Well, the, the cost of access to space is dramatically lower today than it was in the past because of Falcon 9. Um, and it's not just a question of cost of access, but there's also the uh, just actual tonnage to orbit. Um, like you, you can't get around the tonnage to orbit. Uh, um, people think sometimes if you just apply money to a problem, you can solve it, but that's not true. Um, the mass you can get to orbit, that's the mass you get to orbit. And... Um, it's, it's, Falcon 9 has helped um, a lot of small satellite companies uh, create a business because the cost of transport is, is so much lower. You know, in, in a way, it's sort of like, um, like, like the, Uni the Union Pacific Railroad across the U.S. Um, where it's like, you know, how come there are all these businesses popping up in California? Yeah. Because now you've got a railroad, and previously you had to drag a wagon over the Sierras, the Rockies, um, and, and, and then occasionally, like, eat your, you know, fellow uh, wagonauts, um, you know, like the Donner family situation. So basically, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the point is that that's, it's like, once you enable um, low-cost transport, you, you also create um, an opportunity for a lot of companies to 
uh, create interesting businesses uh, because it is no longer prohibitively expensive to get to orbit. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so and, and I, I think I think it's worth I think it's, it's worth just identifying the difference between uh, space and orbit uh, because most people think of those as synonymous, but um, it, but really, getting to space is easy, and getting to orbit is hard, relatively speaking. So, getting to orbit is is, is like hundred times harder than, than getting to sort of say space, you know, which is somewhat arbitrarily defined as um, a hundred kilometer altitude. But you still actually have atmosphere at hundred kilometers, or you know, just over sixty miles. So, um, uh, yeah, so it, it's yeah, roughly two orders of magnitude harder to get to to orbit than to to space. So once you think of it as getting to orbit as opposed to getting to space, um, if you merely get to space and have no no um, velocity parallel to the Earth's surface, you will immediately fall back down just like a cannonball. Yeah. So go, going up and staying up is all about orbit, and and the space station um, is somewhat of a misnomer because it is anything but stationary. Um, the, the space station is moving around Earth at 17,000 miles an hour. Um, the space station is, is, is moving roughly 12 times faster than a bullet from an assault rifle right now. Um, and it, it goes around the Earth every hour and a half. So roughly every 90 minutes, the space station does a complete circuit of the Earth. So I, I, I wouldn't call that stationary. I call that... <laughs> Space motion, not a space station. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about orbit for a second in low Earth orbit. Um, you know, in 2020, I think there are about 2,500 satellites in low Earth orbit. Uh, we're up to about 10,000 just over the last three years. It's on this exponential curve after being on a very, very steady curve for decades. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that bandy about figures. You guys have this massive constellation coming there's other people that want to build one some people say a hundred thousand satellites in a decade two hundred thousand satellites i'm curious where you think this ends up in 10 or 15 years what this this computing shell around the earth looks like um so the the actual question to ask that that that, that's an approximation um number of satellites but the actual question to ask is is the, the tonnage of satellites um so the, the way to think about any satellite constellation is um, how much does it weigh, you know, in, in tons, and what is the uh, useful throughput per ton? So any given constellation can be thought of in this way, or should be, necessarily should be thought of in this way. Um, so what actually matters is, uh, what, you know, so uh, how, what tonnage do you have, and what is the um, uh, useful uh, bits of information per ton? Um, so I think, I think from a tonnage standpoint, it's going to be quite high, um, you know, perhaps on, on the order of, um, 40 or 50,000 tons. Uh, but you're just, I mean, obviously this is speculation, not, not a promise or a plan. If you ask me for what I think my best guess is, it's, we, we end up with something on the order of 50,000 tons of communication satellites in orbit. Um, well, it, it, this is a, a big number for orbit, but a small number for anything terrestrial. 
Yeah, but I mean, the trend has been, you know, towards quite small satellites, and then now they're getting a little bit bigger again. I mean, I see the distinction you're making, but it's still quite an astronomical number, an increase in the number of satellites. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, you obviously can't just count all satellites as the same, because that, that would be like counting a rowboat the same as, as a super tanker. Yeah. If it was a ship. And it's, it's not a question of how many robots you have. It's a, it's a question of how much tonnage, shipping tonnage you have. Um, so let's not say you can't do useful things with a small satellite, but if you're going to do heavy-duty uh, communications, like take, take serious, you know, uh, I mean, let's say 5% or 10% of total Earth Internet traffic um, in orbit, there's, you actually need a minimum amount of power for that. So you can say, like, okay, well, to, to transfer that amount of information, um, you're going to need a certain amount of power, which, which therefore translates to uh, an, an area of solar panels. Um, and then since it's a low-Earth orbit constellation, you need batteries to uh, operate while you're in Earth's shadow. Um, so there's, there is no, there's not some magical way of getting around uh, the, the, the tonnage requirement. There are, you know, there's days when it's very clear to, there's some days I wake up and I think the business case around Starlake totally checks out. You've got this global telecommunications provider, you're getting internet to billions of people that didn't have it. It creates this kind of glue, um, this connective glue around the planet. You know, there's other days when it just, it still seems like just an incredible amount of money to spend on something that may or may not work. I mean, you know, is, I guess the business case must be totally clear to you or do you have these same doubts sometimes? Uh, the business case is um, not subjective. It is objective. If you can provide a compelling internet connection um, where, where the, the quality of the product and the price are competitive uh, with terrestrial options, or often there are simply no terrestrial options, then you obviously have a business. Um, so it's, it's not super complicated. It's just how good is your internet and what's the cost? Many people want to know an update on the Starlink IPO. Do you have any new thoughts on that? Um, it would not be legal for me to speculate about a Starlink IPO. Aren't you, you guys, you guys are private. You're private, aren't you? <laughs> I thought you. No, we're private, but you, you, you cannot. You're. It's, it's. I think against regulations to um, uh, talk with any kind of specifics about a future uh, public offering. Okay. Um, you know, when I tell people the number of satellites that we've already gotten to. Uh, they tend to be, their eyes get big and they sort of had no idea this was happening. They right. always, you know, they always immediately are concerned. Like, like, are we just doing what humans always do and just barging into this new area as fast as we can? Do we have any sort of sense that we can manage all this? And this, this is not a SpaceX specific question. You know, this is as everyone's rushing to try and get constellations up. It's a, it's a bigger question. You're doing things on earth that are trying to sort of attempts at fixing some of the problems we've already created here. Um, you know, isn't history just kind of repeating itself? Now, obviously I called the book when the heavens went on sale for a reason. This is a business now. 
Um, I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at, but obviously it wouldn't be a very effective device if it somehow failed. Um, you know, so, uh, it, it, you know, it would, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's also important to remember that space is very big. Uh, um, it's, it's not like some, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, space is, is bigger than people realize. You can put a lot up in space. I mean, you can think of it as concentric, uh, you know, think of the Earth as sort of, a, obviously, us being on the surface of the Earth is, 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 a, is a sphere, but, but, but being in orbit is, is like basically uh, a vast number of Earth's surfaces, in, like a series of concentric spheres. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, and, and, and they're, they're not filled with debris, they're filled with, most, with nothing. Um, so it's not, it's not a super difficult thing to ensure that, that, that satellites do not collide, provided there is good coordination. So, I mean, I, I agree with the premise, right? I mean, it's in everybody's rational interest to make sure this works. Otherwise, you've invested a ton of money for no reason. Um, we have seen Russia, in particular, not always be a rational actor. You know, a couple of years ago, they shot a missile into one of their own satellites. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, Russia seems like the wild card to me in this whole equation. They have a space program that's um, declining, and they have no commercial space startups to replace it. Do you have concerns that Russia remains a semi-rational actor in space? Well, there's a lot going on in Russia right now. <laughs> yes, there is. I think they have, you know, we're not their, their primary concern. At the moment, <laughs> correct. Um, do you have a... <laughs> do you have a... So you have, you have no... You have no worries about debris fields about these things colliding into each other at some point. It just seems to me that we're moving very, very fast um, as we do this. Well, I'm not suggesting that we'd be cavalier about it. Um, we're actually extremely um, perfectionist about satellite positions that monitor closely. Um, the satellites automatically maneuver to avoid to avoid even coming close to anything else. So it's not a, you know, we don't see a lot of close calls that you would, it's like, a, you know, it went whistling past your ears type of thing. Um, so now this, it is important to have uh, communication, um, you know, to, to, to make sure that, um, Various countries have close coordination in their satellite positions, so you don't go and do something that that is easily avoidable, like like putting a satellite um, that is in, in the exact same orbit as a Starlink satellite. But as long as there is coordination, this is not uh, this is a very tractable problem. It's not a it is not a difficult problem. Um, Are you are you guys making margaritas back there? I'm at a friend's party. <laughs> we postpone this if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, no, no. I just I thought I heard a blender for a second. I was curious. Um, no, it's going pretty well. I think um, the uh, you know when you you guys SpaceX has has basically started running laps around the competition in terms of rockets and is now the world's biggest satellite maker as well. Um, the only other company commercial company that launches on anything resembling a regular basis is rocket lab. Everybody else has really struggled. Um, I'm curious what you think the competitive landscape looks like against SpaceX in 10 years. Is it, is it more of a nation state like China or a company like rocket lab that's trying to build bigger rockets or is it, you know, blue origin, which has been, really slow, but has limitless resources at its disposal. We don't really think about the competition. So, um, I mean, we're just focused on getting people, you know, a, a good area connection from space. And, um, you know, if, if competitors succeed, that's great. Um, you know, if, we, we don't really have any uh, particular, like, we, we've launched competitor satellites. I mean, if it was our goal to, to block uh, competitors, we wouldn't, would not have launched the OneWeb satellites because uh, those were supposed to launch on Soyuz. Um, and uh, then Russia basically uh, nationalized the OneWeb satellites and refused to launch uh, OneWeb satellites on, on Soyuz. Uh, and... Uh, so they came to us, and we, you know, we charged them the same as anyone else. We didn't charge them extra, um, and we launched their satellites. So I think that is obviously being quite supportive of a competitor. Yeah, it's strange. I, I, the and you feel like you don't have competition in the sense that you're just going to do what you want to do, or you don't think people can catch up to SpaceX. As I said, I don't think about the competition. I think about how we can make Starlink better. I think we have about how we can make our rockets better. But anyone who spends time thinking about the competition is wasting their mental energy. Um, it's, like, it's just like in, in sports. Uh, uh, if you, you, you see people who look at, their, at the, who they're racing against uh, right before they cross the finish line and then lose the race. Yeah. The, I have... So it's not... It's not a, it's, I don't know. I mean... Um, like this year, if you know, if things go well and we don't have a launch failure, knock on wood, um, we, SpaceX will put approximately 80% of all Earth payload to orbit. China will put approximately 10%, I think just over 10%. And then the rest of the world uh, will, will do about, I don't know, 8 or 9%. Um, so, you know, at least this year, if our luck holds, we'll do 80% of Earth mass to orbit. That's the, that's the key metric. Do you, I mean, I obviously, there's a million questions asking for an update on Starship and when it's going to go again. Yeah, so let's see. <clears throat> um, there are really a tremendous number of changes uh, between the last uh, Starship played it, and this one, um, but, I mean, well over a thousand. Um, so I, I think the probability of this this next uh, flight working is, uh, you know, getting to orbit is 
much higher than the last one. Um, you know, maybe it's like 60%. It, it depends on how well the we do at stage separation. So we, we, we made a uh, sort of late-breaking change of, that's really quite significant to the way that stage separation works, which is to use uh, hot, hot staging, what's called hot staging, um, where we light the engines of the uh, upper stage or ship um, while the, the, the first stage or booster, booster stage uh, engines are still on. So, so we, we shut down most of the engines on the booster, leaving just a few uh, running. Um, and, and then at the same time, um, start the engines on the ship or upper stage, um, which you, you know, obviously that results in kind of blasting the, the booster. So then you've got to protect the boost, the, the, the top of the boost stage from getting incinerated by the uh, upper stage engines. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is uh, something that the Soviets and Russians have used quite a bit in their rocket designs. Um, the performance, there's a, there's, there's a meaningful payload to, to orbit advantage with hot staging um, that, you know, is conservatively about a 10% improvement. Well, depends on, on what it's been compared to, but let's say in this case, roughly 10% improvement in payload to orbit. Uh, if, if, you, if you basically just never stop thrusting, <laughs> um, so... That's a quote. That sounds uh, like a T-shirt. That's a T-shirt. Yeah, never stop thrusting, Elon Musk. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, it, but it, you know, basically, the moment the rocket stops uh, its engines, uh, it's it, it it actually it starts falling. So, uh, so you actually want to, you, you don't want to be coasting. You don't want to be. In a situation where the engines are not on, because you just immediately start falling back to Earth, um, unless you're already in orbit. So, so you, you want to have you, you want to have a, a kind of a non-stop thrust situation. Um, I think we also have some concerns about. Um, so, uh, so. Um, See, um, so yes, uh, so you want to just, um, you, like I said, you want to start the uh, ship engines before the before you've completely shut down the booster engines. Um, in order to do this, you actually have to uh, have vents, uh, or, or, or you know that, that basically the super hot plasma from the. Uh, upper stage engine's got to go somewhere. Um, so we, we're adding an extension to the booster uh, that, has, that uh, is, is almost all vent, essentially. Uh, so that allows the, uh, the upper stage engine um, uh, plume to uh, go, go through the, the, the sort of vented extension of the booster um, and not just blow itself up. Um, so this is the, the most risky thing, I think, for the next flight. Um, and we'll have to have, add, add a bunch of shielding to the top of the booster. Uh, do, 
Do you have a best guess on when the next flight will be? Uh, you know, there's a lot of variables here that are outside of our control. Um, we think probably uh, the launchpad upgrades um, and the booster ship already in about six weeks. So uh, that's just that's that's the best of our knowledge right now. Um, there's a massive upgrade of the launch site that's happening. Um, so we're, put, we're putting roughly a uh, thousand cubic meters of um, steel reinforced high strength concrete below the pad. And then on top of that, we are, uh, we have a, uh, a sort of a steel sandwich, uh, which, which is uh, basically a very thick plate, two, two thick plates of steel that, that are welded together uh, with uh, channels uh, going through it. So you basically have like this uh, water-cooled steel sandwich um, and then th there are perforations in the top. Uh, so it, it, it'll actually <clears throat> um, shoot a lot of water out of the, it's, it's basically, think of it like a gigantic upside down shower head. Um, so it's, it's gonna basically blast water upwards while the rocket is uh, over the pad uh, to counteract the uh, massive amount of heat from the booster. Um, like the, the booster is basically like the world's biggest cutting torch. Um, it's it's uh, with a massive amount of force. So it's not just heat, but also a massive amount of force. So we, we think this, we're actually going for overkill on the steel sandwich and the concrete. Um, so that that uh, should leave the base of the pad in much better shape uh, than last time. Um, we'll also be doing a higher thrust to weight uh, lift off. So, um, um, it, it, will, it will just spend less time. Um, yeah, it will spend less time uh, on the ground. Do you, I know you've addressed this a little bit, but you know, given everything you just outlined, do you have regrets that you didn't do this previously? This kind of infrastructure work. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty. So, um, so yeah, of course we have regrets. But what? But that is irrelevant. Like, what? What could we do without knowing the answer? Have you have you also addressed and solved some of the engine issues that it looked like there were on the first stage? Yes. Can you do you have any specifics on what you did? Um, uh, the, there's, there's a lot. Um, the, the engines on the last rocket were somewhat of a a uh, hodgepodge. Was, uh, so they were those engines were built and tested over a period of a year. Um, some of the issues. I mean, this is it's going to get very inside baseball if I get into this stuff with basically about zero point one percent of people knowing what I'm talking about. Um, but I think there's some people out there that are into it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, about about one in a thousand people, maybe. Uh, but the, so there's we have what's called a 
we call it call out, um, hot gas hot gas manifold. It takes the fuel rich gas from the um, the, the, the fuel side power head, um, transfers it to the the main chamber, um, or, or transfers it to an area above the main chamber where it's uh, it then mixes with ox rich gas and gets it goes to the main chamber and combusts. We made a number of improvements to that hot gas manifold, which is arguably the most risky, the, risk, the riskiest part of the engine. Um, it's also uh, so, so something that is subject to hot gas leakage, which is a sort of methane-rich uh, hot gas leaking through the, the bolt holes of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the fuel manifold. So, uh, because you've got a situation, something that it gets very hot. So, when something gets very hot, it can, it can gap. Um, so, an improved design of the hot gas manifold, as well as um, uh, higher torque of, on the bolts of the hot gas manifold to minimize uh, potential for hot gas fuel leakage uh, at high pressure uh, is perhaps one of the single biggest improvements. Um, so, man, I'm in the wrong place here. So. Uh, and, and we'll, well, I think we'll have to uh, call this in about five minutes. So, um, you know, if there's questions you want to ask, I would just right. choose them carefully. Can we go rapid fire? Yeah. All right. How much has SpaceX invested in Starship to date? I don't know the exact number, but it's uh, over $2 billion. Probably Maybe this year would approach three. Is that about in line with what you expected going in? It's not far from it. Somebody was asking, um, what's the most difficult technical challenge that still needs to be solved to get Starship to regular commercial flights? Uh, we, don't, we don't know uh, with accuracy what the most important thing is because we've not yet reached orbit. If we knew what it was, we would actually fix it before launching. Um, so in launching, what you're doing is trying to resolve the unknowns, um, which you cannot know before you launch, or at least we are not smart enough to know. So um, but like I said, the, 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 what, what appears to be the biggest risk right now is stage separation. Okay. So, I don't know if this counts as rapid fire, but this is a question that's been top of mind for me. Um, you know, when I wrote my book about you, it was so clear to me that SpaceX was your baby. And I always assumed as time went on, you would start spending less and less time elsewhere and more and more on SpaceX. And then you acquired Twitter and spent a ton of time on that. You've been consumed by AI. Um, you know, does SpaceX still occupy, SpaceX and the, the quest for Mars mm -hmm. still occupy the same level of uh well sorry space in your your head or or do you feel um now you're pulled in all these other directions and things are different yeah i'm not sure is, is there a question there yeah i mean does does you know are you still as dead set focused on mars as kind of your life's quest or are you more concerned about other things now we're trying to get to Mars as fast as possible. Uh, there are other concerns like AI, um, and obviously I'm still committed to Tesla. 
I'm going to go off space just for a second since I only have a couple minutes and there's loads of questions. What's the, what is the status of your new AI company? That is not uh, for the subject. For this <laughs> you, you, you're never shy to answer questions. You have two minutes left. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, you, when we were talking before, um, uh, on Twitter, you know, you said you wanted a technical CEO, but you did not hire a technical CEO. What, what, how did you come to that decision? This is a uh, next question. Yep, one minute left. You said in your uh, note that we would talk about things beyond space. You tweeted it out. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, the, literally the title of this is The Rise of Commercial Space. So this is not an open-ended, uh, you know, as, uh, thanks. Actually, the call is now terminated. All right. I saw that, you know, I was just following what you said on there. I thought we'd have a little little opportunity. You sure? <laughs> and like that, he's gone. Um, well, I tried my best. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening. And um, I hope you all have a great weekend. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.